if the venture capitalists wouldn't have started telling their portfolio right. companies to pull their money out, it's most likely there would not have been this issue. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's a special episode in reaction to the Silicon Valley uh, banking collapse, crash, whatever you want to call it. I've got a guest today that knows a thing or two about the economy. Is he, he's not, he would tell me, I'm not an expert, but I studied the hell out of it. So there's your disclaimer. Jay Scott is a multi-time best-selling author. He is the host of the Bar Down Inven Investing Show, excuse me, uh, and has a few uh, things to say, I think, about what's going on out in, uh, in Silicon Valley. He's got a lot of knowledge here, studies up on it, has an incredible newsletter, which we'll learn a little bit more about here in a moment. And I wanted to get him on just to talk a little bit about the backstory on this collapse and what's to come, or at least what we think is to come uh, as a result of that. So, Jay, man, welcome. Thanks for jumping on so quickly. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Thrilled, always, always thrilled to be on with you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just for context, this is it's Monday as we record this. We're going to release it Tuesday. I literally messaged Jay yesterday, Sunday, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. So incredible. Thank you for that, man. I, I really appreciate it. So what are we dealing with here? So this bank, which well, we'll get into sensationalism here in a moment, but what happened? What happened with, give us the kind of the, 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 the bullets to set up. Why did Silicon Valley Bank end up going from, you know, thriving bank of the tech industry to out of business? Yeah. And, and so it's, it's kind of a, a, a winding little story, but it's, it's not that complicated. Let's start with the fact that you said it yourself. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank is a tech focused bank. Um, their depositors, people that put the money in their bank, tend to not be very diversified. We're talking about mostly startup tech companies that are raising money from venture capitalists, maybe raising $5 million, $10 million, $50, $100 million. And when they raise that money, they basically get a check. And they need to do something with that money. Typically, that's enough money to last them a year or two of what we call runway, meaning a year or two before they run out. These are companies that are, for the most part, they're burning money every month. That money is going to expenses. It's paying payroll. It's paying uh, their rent costs. It's paying their tools costs, whatever it is. So they're not putting more money into the bank every month. They're taking this 5 or 10 or $50 million check. They're sticking in the bank. And then every month, they're pulling some of that money out to pay all their monthly expenses. And then a year or two, that money is gone from the bank. That's a very, very different profile of depositor in a bank than what we see at most banks. In most banks, um, we're talking about people like you and me, we might put $10,000 or maybe even fifty dollars or $100,000 in a bank at six months of, um, of, of just emergency fund. We're going to let it sit there. Maybe we'll add to it. Maybe we'll take a little bit out. Um, but we're certainly not putting large amounts in and then taking four or 8% of it out every month to pay our expenses. So number one, consider that Silicon Valley Bank was a much different profile than a lot of banks out there. That's, that's mm -hmm. the first thing to consider. So when people say, is this risk that, that we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, is it a risk with other banks? The answer is absolutely it is, but it's not the same level of risk because again, the profile of depositor for this bank is very different. So let's talk about what happened. So 2019, 2020, uh, we all remember COVID came and, and the economy boomed and lots of startup companies started raising lots of money from venture capitalists. Venture capitalists were just throwing out tons of money left and right. And so we had all of these companies that were raising money in, 19, uh, in 2019, 2020, 2021. And 
Silicon Valley Bank, their deposits, their total deposits increased from about $60 billion to about $200 billion. Crazy. Now, just to put that into context, $200 billion, decent sized bank, I think it was the 16th largest bank in the country, um, but still small compared to a lot of the big boys. But basically, they, their deposits went from $60 billion to $200 billion. And again, remember, a lot of their depositors are pulling money out month after month after month. And so if a typical company raised enough money for two years, that's safe to say that in two years, that $200 billion was going to go back down to $60 billion or less. But the bank kind of expected that over the next couple of years, venture capitalists would keep throwing out money and deposits would keep going up. So even though money was going to be drawn down over a year or two, it would keep going up as well. So when this $60 billion, like, soared to 200 billion in in deposits the bank did what the bank always does what banks always do they loaned it out they loaned out as much as they could and silicon valley bank did these things called venture debt which basically means loans to uh venture backed startups so kind of like venture capital but but debt um they were giving out mortgages they were giving out business loans all the typical stuff but as you can imagine loaning out 200 billion dollars is really really tough so when their deposits went from 60 billion to 200 billion over 2020, 2021, what they found is they were sitting on a ridiculous amount of cash, like $100 billion in cash. Banks don't want to sit on cash any more than you or I do because it's just getting eaten away by inflation. So what the bank decided to do was they decided to take this money and stick it in treasury bonds, basically uh, government bonds that just generate back then about 1.6, 1.7% interest. Um, and when we hear bonds, we typically think safe investment. In fact, we refer to them as kind of the risk-free investment because government bonds are, are safe. And so they took like close to $100, million, $100 billion and they stuck it in bonds. They also stuck it in some mortgage-backed securities. Yep. Um, so bonds related to the real estate industry as well. And so they did that. Now they don't have a lot of cash sitting around, which was okay because, again, they're a bank. They expect more deposits. Well, then 2022 happened. And in 2022, basically, we all know the economy started to slow down. Venture, yeah. capital, venture capital dried up. And the bank stopped getting these 5, 10, 50, $100 million deposits because venture capitalists weren't just throwing money around to all these startup companies. So the bank's deposits slowed down. What didn't slow down was all of these companies still needed to make payroll every month and pay their rent every month. And so basically they were still pulling money out every month and the bank realized, oh no, we are not going to have enough cash on hand to basically fulfill all the withdrawal requests that we're getting every month over the next year or two or three because um, we're just not getting enough deposits anymore and so much of our cash is in bonds. So what the, the company decided to do was they decided to sell some of those bonds. Now, we can talk about this if you want. We can go into detail here. But long story short, the way bonds work is when interest rates go up, the value of bonds that you might be holding that you want to sell goes down. So they bought these bonds back in 2019, 2020, 2021, when interest rates were near zero. 2022, 2023, interest rates are now near 5%. And so the value of these bonds dropped tremendously. Well, in, I guess it was last week, last Monday, uh, the bank decided they really needed to sell some bonds in order to, to just cover some, some liquidity shortages. They sold up, off a bunch of bonds. 
they took a $1.8 billion loss on that tranche of bonds that they sold last week. Unfortunately, that loss put them in a bad cash position. They had to go to regulators and report what happened. Regulators stepped in and basically the bank decided what we're going to do is we're going to be forthcoming with with all our depositors, with all our shareholders, and we're going to tell them about Uh what our our position is. And what that position was is that they literally had another 80, 90 billion dollars in bonds that were far underwater from what they bought them at. So suddenly, everybody now knows, and when I say everybody, I mean the people that matter, the venture capitalists, the startup companies in in this space, know that this bank is taking big losses. They're having a liquidity issue. If they're going to sell off their assets, they're going to sell them for a big loss. And all the venture capitalists who had funded the the companies that were depositing money at this bank started telling their their what we call portfolio companies the companies that they funded hey you got to move money out of this bank because the bank's not in good financial shape and so all these companies started moving money out of the bank last wednesday i think there was 42 billion dollars in withdrawals from the bank and suddenly that's what that's what we refer to as a run on the bank basically mm-hmm. everybody wants their money out all at once the bank doesn't have enough cash to cover all that um, and then last Wednesday night, the bank basically said, we're screwed. We don't know what to do. Thursday morning, uh, California regulators stepped in and said, hey, we're shutting the bank down. Thursday afternoon, the FDIC stepped in and said, we're taking this bank into receivership, which basically means we're going to take control of the bank and we're going to figure out what to do. And then over the weekend, uh, we can talk about it, but basically over the weekend, they figured out what they were going to do. Looks like all the depositors, all the companies that deposited money are going to be made whole. The bank's going out of business. The investors in the bank, remember, banks are companies. So all the investors in the bank will probably lose all their money. The people that worked at the bank will probably lose their jobs. Um, So it's not good for the bank, but it looks like all the depositors are going to be made whole. But that's basically what happened. A lot to unpack. A lot to unpack. So, So let me ask this. So this bank, you mentioned, it was an interesting stat. I didn't know that that was the number, but I wondered. 4 to 8% of deposits per month, it sounds like. You being from tech, I don't know if that's just a guess. That's just a guess. So typically, um, given that most of that money was venture capital money, yeah. typically when, when companies borrow money, and again, this is, this is a guess on my part, but typically when companies uh, get venture capital infusions, uh, when they raise equity, uh, typically they get enough equity to last one to two years. So we talk about okay. companies raising money and then they have to raise money again in a year or two because they're out of money. So if you think of it from that perspective, 12 to 24 months, they're probably burning somewhere between four and 8% of their total capital every month. Okay. So if they're burning four to 8%, tell me if I'm wrong on this, the bank, the bank was able to absorb, so you say 200 billion in deposits, they were able to absorb say 20, $30 billion worth of withdrawals. Were they not? Were they liquid enough to take care of 20? But my, my ask, I guess, is like, I'm thinking of this bank, like how did it go from, how did it go from in a great cash position? I'm sorry, I shouldn't say in a great cash position. How did it go from being a, you know, a reputable bank one day, right? To, to not, other than the run. So in other words, like if the run didn't happen, I get that the value, I get that the value of the long-term uh, mortgage-backed securities and the treasury uh, uh, bonds that they had, I get that the values of those dropped. I, I liken this to 2008. It's like in 2008, if you bought a house for 400 grand and you had a 30-year mortgage on it, and then the crisis happens and your house is worth 300 grand, but you have your job, then really nothing changes, right? Like, okay, the value went down of my portfolio, my house, but- 
I could still make these monthly payments. So even though the the hundred billion in bonds went down to I don't know 60, 70 billion, whatever I, I can't do that math overall. You you could do it. Whatever the value of it was, but for the run, it really is irrelevant, at least in the short term, right? Or am I am I wrong on that? Is the no. run the issue? Yes, hundred percent. So had there not been a run on the bank, had all the and, and, and there's a lot of talk in the industry about if the venture capitalists wouldn't have started telling their portfolio right. companies to pull their money out, it's most likely there would not have been this issue. Uh, would the bank still have had some, some financial issues? Yes. In fact, back last fall, uh, the bank knew that they were down like $17 billion uh, on those bonds. Now, the way the accounting is done, and if you want, we can talk about this, but the way sure. the accounting is done, uh, the bank didn't need to report that they were down $17 billion. So nobody knew that the bank was losing lots of money. But here's the thing. With bonds, you lose money or gain money when you sell them before right. they, what we refer to as mature. So if you buy a 10-year bond, if you hold it to 10 years, and you're, let's say, promised 3% interest per year, you get your 3% interest for 10 years, never an issue. But if you decide to sell it in less than 10 years, that's when you're going to make money or lose money because there's they're, they're worth a different amount today than they were when you bought them. And so had the bank simply held on to those long-term bonds that they were getting 1.7% on um, for 10 years, they would have been absolutely fine. Uh, they probably would have had to raise additional money. They might have had to borrow some money from outside sources uh, to, to keep themselves liquid, but they certainly wouldn't have run into the issue that they ran into last week where they had so many withdrawals at once that they couldn't cover it with the cash they had on hand. So that's the trigger of the run. The run is triggered by the fact that they sold all these bonds at a loss. And again, you mentioned it, but clean that up for me. What was the reason why they felt the need? Because it was prior to the run, right? Like the run didn't yeah. cause them to sell the bonds, which would make sense to me. But what was the reason they sold before the like that triggered the run? They needed the cash. Um, what though? What, what do they uh, need the cash for? Uh, so I don't know the details. Um, I, I don't want to, to over overstep my my knowledge here. <laughs> I don't know what was going on day to day. I don't know if they needed that cash um, to to stay within within compliance and regulation because mm. banks do have certain cash requirements. Um, I don't know if they knew that they had some upcoming big expense or withdrawal that they needed to cover. I don't know exactly what led them to selling the bonds. Um, but at the same time that they were selling those bonds, they were also talking about the fact that they needed to raise money. And so last week, before all of this came out, that they were undercapitalized, that they had lost all this money on bonds. And when I say it just came out, it actually came out a few months ago, but most people didn't realize it. Um, when it came out last week, at that point, the bank, SVB, was trying to raise capital. Um, mm -hmm. They were trying to bring in more investors to raise additional capital. They were unable to raise the capital, which is when they basically had to go to regulators and say, this is what's going on. And it was at that point that they basically um, restructured their balance sheet. They, basically, they updated their balance sheet to reflect um, the true value of all of their asset holdings. Interesting. So is the mistake that they made simply being over over leveraged, if you will, in long term bonds and mortgage backed securities? I mean, is this is it irregular for a bank to be at that percentage, whatever it was? I read 80 percent. Maybe I'm wrong on that of their of their uh, deposits are in these 10 year that don't need to be marked to market. Right. That don't need to be uh, adjusted until the time of maturation. Is that their mistake that they were too too into too 
too over-leveraged in that particular, I don't over-leverage is the right word, too over-invested, I guess I should say, in that specific uh, uh, long-term debt or long-term, yeah, you got it. Asset, yeah. (laughs) Asset, thank Uh, you. It's a hard question to answer. I mean, in retrospect, obviously it was a bad decision. In retrospect, I mean, they, they lost 20, 10 to 20% of the value in, in that asset. And anytime you invest in something that loses 10 to 20% of its value, um, when it should be a safe investment, it was a bad decision. But let me ask you, going back to 2020, and I know it's hard to put ourselves back in that, that mind, mindset, but going back to 2020, when, when we're in the middle of COVID, I think it's reasonable to assume that we were all thinking back then that it's going to be a really long time before yeah. we see interest rate hikes. We, we saw interest rates go to zero, and it felt like we were going into a recession that was going to last a lifetime. Um, and that the day that we saw 5% increase in the federal funds rate in a year, just that that couldn't have existed in our minds. I know mm. a lot of people in, in retrospect, uh, Monday morning quarterback, hindsight 2020, are saying, well, we knew that there was a chance of this happening. But did anybody really think it was happening? I mean, you and I are in, in the commercial real estate world. How many no. how many commercial real estate investors went out and got uh, floating rate debt? How many people... Um, uh, went out and and got floating rate mortgages. Uh, very few people could have guessed that what happened over the last year was going to happen. Now, do we set the bar higher for uh, a two hundred billion dollar bank that probably has people that are dedicated to to running this, this risk analysis and 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 knowing that this is a possibility and mitigating it? Certainly, certainly the bar is higher for them and. Uh, in retrospect, I, I think it's probably safe to say that what they did was not a smart investment, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that it would rise to the level of fraud or complete incompetence. Or reckless, was. right? I don't feel yeah, I, I don't I, feel I, like there was recklessness here. Like I think about if I if I read the news right, and you correct me if I'm wrong, they were sitting liquid on about 25. If if the if 25% of deposits were withdrawn, they could cover that. Maybe. Okay. So I'm looking at it coming from the insurance world prior, right? The insurance claims world. I was in a a progressive insurance for years and years. And, you know, I I was in claims, but you would look at how we would reserve and we would talk about reasonable worst case and everything else. If I'm looking at, well, my run rate is four to 8% to your point or 10%, whatever it might be of deposits withdrawn on a month to month basis. If I triple that in reserves or liquid, liquid liquidity, the ability to get liquid, if I triple that, that's a pretty good hedge against what you would think would be, you know, a run, right? Like, well, we get, somebody would have to go three times the normal for us to start getting in trouble. So that's where they are. Now, they were wrong. So to your point, like, it, it's results, right? Results are results. But I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, and, the, and we'll get in the media here in a second, because the media is making a thing out of this, obviously. But I'm struggling with the, the recklessness, the vilification, other than, to your point, yeah, knowing what we know now and seeing what could have been, yeah, maybe you should have been a little bit more conservative. Yeah, so, so let's dig into this a little bit. So number one, um, keep in mind, here's the other thing that, that you have to keep in mind. The thing that they didn't anticipate, number one, they obviously didn't anticipate that the value of these bonds could drop, but they probably expected that they weren't going to have to sell these bonds prior to maturity anyway. The big thing that they misjudged was that venture capital was going to dry up. And that's what we saw last year, that basically venture capitalists stopped handing out money. So we, they stopped getting these $25 million, $100 million, $500 million deposits at the bank. Had 
the tech industry stayed strong, had venture capital stayed strong, um, had they been getting these deposits every month by from companies that were raising money, they would have had plenty of cash on hand. The problem is that they were seeing the drawdown month after month after month. And at some point last year, when, when interest rates increased, the deposits basically stopped. And that's what caught them by surprise. Not necessarily the bonds. Obviously, the bonds were an issue, um, but they probably weren't even thinking about the bonds because they were assuming that's that's not something we have to worry about. That's in our portfolio. We'll sell them. We'll hold them for 10 years. Um, it's the deposits that they were expecting to keep rolling in that would fund their liquidity that stopped coming in. Okay. Now, we, 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 talk, about, um, we, we talk about where they might have been res- reckless. The way these banks work is every time they buy an asset, they have to put these assets in one of two buckets, and, and they, they call it the HTM bucket or the AFS bucket. HTM stands for hold, hold to maturity, and AFS stands for available for sale. So yeah. every time uh, a bank buys an asset like a bond, like whatever they buy, um, they have to say it's going in the hold to maturity bucket or it's going into the uh, available for sale bucket. And so if you put something in the hold to maturity bucket, that basically means you think you're, or the bank thinks it's going to hold this asset until it matures. If they buy a 10-year bond, they think they're going to hold it for 10 years. If they put it in the available for sale bucket, that means they're going to, they think they're going to sell it before it matures. What they did was they took about 85% of all the bonds they, they bought and they put it in the HTM bucket, the hold to maturity. That's bucket. what I read. Got it. So, so some people seem to think, and, and there's some, some validity here, some people seem to think by putting it in the HTM bucket, that meant they were planning to hold it to maturity. They weren't planning to sell these bonds for 10 years. But you can take a little bit different view of that that makes them look a little bit more reckless. One of the benefits of putting an asset in the HTM bucket is um, you record the value of that asset on your balance sheet when you buy it. And if that asset goes down in value, because you say you're going to hold it for, for the, the entire time, if it goes down in value, you don't need to update your balance sheet. Hmm. You don't need to say these bonds that we bought at $100 billion are only worth $80 billion. You don't need to say that. You don't need to tell your shareholders. Unless you liquidate or it goes to maturity. At that point, you do. Right. If you sell even a single bond out of that portfolio, now you have to, to basically what we call mark to market your, your balance sheet. You need to reprice all of those bonds. And so by putting it in the HTM bucket, they probably knew that even if they lost value, that they wouldn't need to tell anybody because they never expected to sell it. Ah. Um, and so putting, putting stuff in the HTM bucket is a way of avoiding having to acknowledge that potentially you have losses. Mm. Um, and so some people seem to believe that the reason they put 85% of these bonds in the HTM bucket um, was because they knew that if interest rates went up, if they were losing money on these bonds, they wouldn't have to update their balance sheet um, to reflect that and nobody would know. So you could say that maybe they mm. were trying to hide some information. There, It was pretty clear that last fall, they knew that they were down about $17 billion on this portfolio, but they didn't have to. Again, they didn't have to restructure their balance sheet. They didn't mm-hmm. have to, to make this public knowledge. Some people were talking about it. I mean, you can you, it's all public what their holdings are, so you can go in and do the math, um, but they didn't make it easy. 
And so you could say that there, there was some stuff that the bank did to kind of hide these losses until the very last minute. And had they been a bit more proactive and forthcoming and transparent about what was going on, it's very possible they could have stemmed this uh, a couple months ago and avoided what happened last week. That's great, man. That that really gives me perspective. Now, I, yeah, I, I skew more toward reckless because you're right. That is a great way to hide, if you will. Oh, no, no, no. We're good. Look at our balance sheet. Look at, look at the books. Look at the paper, right? But it's interesting on this, too. The other part is we talk about reckless is this, and I don't know enough about it, but uh, you being in that industry... I, I, just listening to the news over the last, I don't know, two decades, tech seems to go through these, you know, boom bust cycles big time, right? And I'm going to guess that venture capital, you know, being plentiful and drying up is part of that boom bust cycle. Is that true? Yes and no. Um, So venture capital drying up on what we're seeing in venture capital right now is it has dried up from the perspective of companies trying to raise money. So there are lots of companies out there that want to raise money and venture capitalists are saying, ah, we don't know where the, the economy is going. Things are softening. Values are coming down. We're not going to invest right now. But right now, venture capitalists are sitting on more what we call dry powder um, than they have at any point in history. I've, I've heard somewhere between 200 and 300 um, uh, uh, trillion dollars um, in, in potential like dry powder. Um, I'm sorry, two or two to three trillion dollars. Not two. I was going to say, wow. I'm sorry, I apologize. Still, two to three trillion. Trillions a lot. Three trillions uh, yeah. a lot. Still. Two, two to yeah. three trillion dollars in dry powder, which means that that there's a lot of money potentially out there, but venture capitalists aren't investing it. So, um, so yeah, so so th- we we definitely see the, these boom and bust cycles, and and so I, I think it could be a year or two. I mean, a lot of a lot of these VCs are saying. Um, it's going to be 2024 or 2025 before they're really investing again. Interesting. All right. Let's get into the HDM ATS. I think it was right. ATS HDM. Did I say AFS. that right? AFS. AFS. Excuse me. AFS available for sale. Um, uh, balance that they had. Like a couple of things come to mind. First is I remember post 08 Dodd-Frank, all of this regulation came out, making sure banks don't, you know, we have, we don't have the same issue. In this case, there's a loophole here, right, where they could show uh, they could keep the balance sheet looking strong while potentially sitting on on uh, devalued assets. Right. And they over leveraged yep. that or over over uh, indexed for that. Right. Yep. How, how much is that? Do you know, is that a bank like are they the Bill Belichick where they figured out the the loophole in the in the rule book and they exploited it? And no other coach thinks that way or are all banks right now going, uh oh. <laughs> we're not in a much better position than this. Like, is this the loophole that banks are using or like we're getting into contagion here. So I, I want to kind of shift into that. Go for it. Yeah. So um, I read somewhere and I wish I would have written down the number, but I read somewhere that it was announced or, or, or somebody did the math and determined that there was something like $3 trillion or $6 trillion, somewhere in the three to $6 trillion of paper losses um, in the HTM bucket right now that wow. aren't that haven't been realized on, on balance sheets. Now, again, keep in mind that there are a lot of much, much bigger banks than than what Silicon Valley Bank was. There are also a lot of banks, so it's possible that there's a long tail there, and and, and a lot of that is is uh, just amortized over a lot of smaller banks. Um, so yeah, the number is big, but also keep in mind, and and this was I think the point I started on. 
was that Silicon Valley Bank, the, um, the profile of a depositor for that bank is very different than most banks. And for most banks, you're not going to see the depositors that are taking out 4 to 8% of, of their deposits every month. Um, you're not going to see them putting in $25 million or $50 million at a time. Um, mm. And so most banks are a lot more well-diversified. And so I don't believe, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a banking expert, I'm not a regulator, but in, in my layman's opinion, I don't believe that what we're seeing is a significant risk on the industry as a whole, at least not now, and at least not due specifically um, to the, the interest rate risks and, and, and bond holdings. Could be wrong. I, I think that uh, that the Fed is going to take this seriously, and maybe we talk about this separately. Um, I think this could impact um, the Fed's uh, forward movement over the next couple months. What they do with interest rates, um, if for no other reason than to 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 kind of head off the perceived risk. One thing to keep in mind, and you mentioned it yourself, that it was the run on the bank that caused the issue. It was the people taking their money out. That caused the issue. It wasn't necessarily that the bank didn't have enough money. And this is the problem, is that perception in That's this it. case, in, in, in this situation, is a lot more important than reality. If people think that there's a problem, and if people take action to kind of protect themselves from a problem that might not exist, we can actually create a problem. So it was all the people that heard, hey, you got to get your money out of the bank before it collapses, that actually caused the bank to collapse. Yep. Makes sense. And this is where I want to get into sensationalism and media, because I'll be honest, maybe I'm in the minority. Maybe I'm not. I had never heard of this bank before Thursday of last week. Right. And I think unless you're in tech or, or you know, some some funds in that space, most people probably had. Now we hear, oh, 16th largest bank. Oh, my God. But I <laughs> I love how like this is an example of, of how of how media can normalize something that that could be sensational. Right. So the, the term SVB. I, I think of it like this, like if I walked into the room and I go, Jay, what's SVB? And you go, Silicon Valley Bank, man, come on. And I go, oh, okay. And then somebody walked up two seconds behind me and goes, Jamie, what's SVB? And I'm like, come on, man, Silicon Valley <laughs> Bank, right? Like, like all of a sudden SVB is like this buzz phrase that we all should have known, it yep. seems like, right? So with that, with that, that's my concern now. So, you know, if you're out there listening, like the media has the potential to latch onto this and make normal course of business seem fraudulent or crazy and and the run on the bank. So so how much of what's to come and I think you've already answered this but I just want to kind of like stamp it in the dirt from your perspective. How much of whatever is to come is based on sensationalism versus fundamentals? Uh, again, I'm I'm I don't know if anybody has that data um and certainly it's I'm I'm not qualified to kind of put percentages on it. Sure. Um, but my take is that again, I don't think that this is a significant issue if we don't make it a significant issue. Um, are there banks out there that are probably running thin? No doubt. Mm -hmm. um, but we have bank failures. We had bank failures back in 2020 and 2019 and 2018. I think we had a couple of years with no bank failures, but then you go back to 2012, we had a few, and back to 2008, 9, and 10, we had a bunch. So bank failures aren't, I'm not going to say they're common. Um, I think there may have been 20 of them over the last 15 years since since 2010, since like the, the big collapses in, in 2008. Sure. Um, so, so they happen. Um, but 
they they don't happen all the time, but it's it's not a it never happens. So yeah, there are always going to be banks that are running thin. There's going to be banks that have different investor and depositor profiles uh, that have more risk and different types of risk. There's a lot of talk right now about First Republic Bank. So um, who knows what's going to happen between now and when this is released tomorrow? Um, but a lot of people are talking about First Republic Bank being the next domino to fall. Um, and so, but by the same token, um, I have friends in Silicon Valley who tell me they're moving money out of SVB into First Republic Bank. Um, because <laughs> is that why capital. are they are they another tech heavy bank? Is that what First Republic Bank they, is? I, I think it's about five percent of of their depositors are tech. So uh, tech heavy compared to most banks, sure. um, but very tech light compared to Silicon Valley Bank, which was like ninety five or ninety eight percent. And so, uh, so, so could First Republic have a problem? Well, right now, the people that are on the inside don't think so. But if if we start talking about First Republic being the next domino to fall, who knows? People are going to go out and 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 start uh, start pulling their money out. I think we saw fifteen or twenty banks today stop trading on 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 the on the exchange because there was there was just a lot of concern that there was going to be just a, um, a snowball effect uh, on the equity of, of these banks. And so I think it is important that the media kind of take a step off the gas and, and be realistic and not be sensational because sensationalism can lead to bigger issues. And I, I think that's that's a risk here. But uh, if it weren't for that, I, I think things are probably a, a lot more solid and secure than what a lot of people believe based on what we saw last week. So one of those things that I've read a lot about is the the uh, percentage, I want to say it was maybe 10% of deposits were for, for SVB were uh, in, say, non-public venture type of type of debt that was that was given by the bank right 10% yeah. of their total deposits um i feel like there's a bit of a straw man in there like in other words it's being it's being publicized by a lot of folks like oh my god look what they did look what they did but that's not what that's not the that's not what caused the collapse right that's not that money is not like oh had they not done that this wouldn't have happened um oh, but what what anything that we're learning of that though like is there still I don't know. Is that some? Is that still a major risk that the bank took that didn't need to? Is it just optics? What What does that mean? Can you Can you decipher why the media is making a deal of that piece of it? I think. Well, the media is always trying to get eyeballs <laughs> and clicks, and and they're going to say whatever they need to say to to kind of get people to to go visit their site, whether it's CNN or Fox or MSNBC or yeah. whatever it is. They, they want people to keep coming back and checking for updates and, and new information. And so it's their, their obligation to dig up something new and something relevant, even if it wasn't relevant. Um, and so uh, my bigger concern here isn't necessarily that um, there are a lot of other banks that are in trouble. My mm. bigger concern here is if people stop trusting banks, right. they're going to start treating their money differently. They're going to stop putting their money in banks. Um, where are they going to put their money if they don't put them in banks? Well, they might put them in treasuries directly. I actually think that they're, they're going to start seeing a lot of people who decide, I've got 100K here. I don't want to leave it in the bank. I'm going to go open a, a, a treasury account and, and put it in bonds myself. Um, or I'm going to start putting more money in the stock market. Or I'm going to put money with a brokerage in a money market account um, or someplace else that they perceive as safer because now we have this, this perception that banks are somehow unsafe. 
and you do that, and now suddenly all of these banks start to see deposits dropping. All of these banks start to see cracks because um, they can't cover the withdrawals, um, and they they just aren't operating efficiently. And suddenly we see a consolidation in the banking world, and I think that's bad for everybody. I think competition is really what's going to help us here, not consolidation, not the government stepping in and saying we're going to help a couple of these big banks. We saw how that happened, how that worked back in 2008. Um, we, we don't want the uh, too big to fail, especially when all the smaller ones are going away. Yeah. Yeah. And on that topic, I wanted to dive into that government backstopping. So Biden announced today, at least I, I've, I saw a few articles uh, where he talked about and to be expected, uh, deposits will be essentially secured, waiving the 250 FDIC. Um, and he even expanded it to like, no matter what, in other words, if other banks happen or whatever. And I, I, I don't know, from my perspective, I think that would be soothing news for most not to make runs on additional banks and so on and so forth. But what say you? Right move, wrong move, too soon, not soon enough. What, what do you think of the government's reaction so far? I think it's been great. And I know a lot of people disagree and they they hate that too big to fail sort of thing. But but well, it's not the bank, my- though. Right. It's not the bank that they're being that's being bailed out, though. A hundred percent. And this is this is the the issue that I have is that so many people are kind of confusing the bank with the depositors. Right. Um, and we, I've been hearing for the last two days. I don't want the FDIC to be bailing out the bank. Blah, 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 blah. I can't believe they're doing all this. They're not bailing out the bank. So Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, both collapsed. Investors in those banks are going to lose all their money. Uh, employees at those banks are 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 going to lose their jobs. Yeah. Um, it, there's talk that some of the the high ups at, at Silicon Valley Bank took bonuses before they left, so maybe that's a bad Oof. thing. But for the most part, anybody associated with the bank didn't come out of this well. Um, who we're, we should be thinking about bailing out are the people that didn't have the ability to um, to assess the risk. The people that didn't know when they were depositing money in whether it's Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, First Republic or Chase or Wells Fargo, whatever bank it is, I don't look at a balance sheet before I deposit money in a bank. And right. I assume you don't. And I assume no. even big companies don't. We assume that these banks are well-regulated and they're secure. And the government sends us the message that, that they are. And so I do believe that it's the government's responsibility to protect the consumer, not the bank but the consumer when it comes to things like this. And so I like what they did. I love the fact that this was all handled pretty much over the weekend. Um, they had talked about basically selling off SVB by, by yesterday to ensure the depositors were, were made whole. They couldn't get that done by last night. So they came out and announced that we're going to make them whole ourselves. Um, a lot of people don't think about this, but it, one of the big issues with Silicon Valley Bank was, and I have a lot of friends dealing with this today, is that, yeah, even though the FDIC might have said, we're going to make you whole, you're not going to lose any money. Had they said it's going to take us a week to get you your money, that's a whole lot of companies missing payroll this week. Right. Um, and so I have a lot of friends that even today, Silicon Valley Bank is making funds available today. But I have friends that are dealing with payroll companies that can't take money from Silicon Valley Bank um, because they they changed their, their algorithms over the weekend. Um, I have friends that can't wire into Silicon Valley Bank or out of Silicon Valley Bank um, just because of things that happened over the weekend. And so even though it seems like everything's great and the government stepped in and everybody's been promised their money back, I know a lot of companies today that are struggling to make payroll this week um, just because of things that happened over the weekend. And I think it's the responsibility of the government 
to take a proactive role as opposed to a reactive role and ensure that even if things seem to be fine, like they are with Silicon Valley Bank, that the companies that are depositing there and the people that are depositing there don't have any issues later. So I like the fact that they've set up this fund. Basically, what they've said is that we're going to make loans to these banks um, if we have to, to kind of backstop them. Um, I think they could probably, and I suspect they will as, as they dig in a little bit further, they'll probably do things to ensure that they're more likely to get paid back, either taking warrants from the bank or collateral from the bank or whatever it is. Um, but I, I do think it's important, and I, I, I do commend uh, the Treasury, the FDIC, and, and, uh, and, and the rest of the government for kind of stepping in and saying, we're going to be proactive about this as opposed to reactive. Is there a taxpayer impact here? I've read no. Oh, there will be no impact to the taxpayer. And I've also I heard, and maybe you know this, I don't, uh, that the stimulus from years and years ago that was so you know, vilified, actually created a return for the U.S. Yes. government, right? Like we actually are profitable on that stimulus. So is, it, is that why the taxpayers won't be impacted this time? Is it more long-term, we repeat what we did last time, only backing depositors as opposed to banks like we did last time? So it's unclear exactly what the, the longer-term solution is, whether it's more regulation or whether it's some, some, some fund that's, that's potentially taxpayer-backed. But as of right now, all the money is coming from FDIC insurance fund. So FDIC keeps an insurance fund that is not funded by taxpayers. That is funded by the banks. Mm. Now, a lot of people will argue that if um, if the FDIC has to do a special assessment against the banks for the uh, for the fund and say, hey, we need all the banks to put in more money. What are the banks going to do? They're going to pass that cost on to us in terms of fees. But we are not, as taxpayers, directly funding this, this bailout of, of depositors and consumers. This is all being paid for by the banks themselves. Got it. What's so, the lesson so far, for, so far? So far. What's the lesson for a founder in all of this? What do you do differently? I mean, do you do you literally no more than two fifty in one in any one bank? Is that is that what a founder is to do? Like, what does it look like for them? So I, I've heard a lot of people suggest that, but but let me let me kind of give you a scenario. Let's say you just raised twenty five million dollars <laughs> and, and you need to put two hundred and fifty thousand. That's a hundred different banks. Yeah. Um, basically, you're hitting like one out of every six banks that are out there for 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 your money. But here's the thing. What happens when, when you have a $300,000 payroll next month or mm -hmm. next week? Um, are you going to tell your payroll company? I, it's, it's like, here's four credit cards. You go to, to buy something. Here's put 25% put on there. And you, you can't do that. Um, you can't tell your payroll company, take the first 250 out of this bank and then the next 250 out of that bank and then 50 out of this bank. It doesn't work like that. So um, I, I think this is this goes back to what I was saying before. Is I think that we're going to start seeing um, depositors change up their strategies for for what they're doing with their money. Um, I have a good friend that has or had or has, depending on how you want to look at it, twenty five million dollars in Silicon Valley Bank um, for his company. And what he said to me when we were talking about this last Friday was he wasn't concerned because. What he does is instead of leaving the cash in the bank, um, he basically has what's called a sweep account, where every day um, his money gets moved into a BlackRock um, fund mm. um, that's basically 99% cash and, and short-term treasuries. Um, so basically, he took his $25 million and it's not sitting in the bank. It's actually sitting in a, in a, a, a BlackRock fund, Interesting. Um, which which 
from his perspective, was really smart. He was making about 4% on it, um, which is probably about the same he would have been making and he left it in, in money market at the bank. Um, but it was protected when the bank failed. His money wasn't technically in the bank. It was in some third-party escrow account um, that he had a lot less concern about getting it. So I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing more people doing things like that, moving their money into to third-party sweep accounts where they can invest it into short-term securities, whether it be a 28-day T-bill or whether it be a three-month bond or whatever it is. Um, but if they start doing that, now it's money that the bank doesn't have access to. And now we're going to start seeing banks struggling. And I'm not saying I care about the banks, um, but I do care about the fact that if we see too many banks go away, it's going to be less competition and less yeah. competition is generally bad for consumers. And so I don't want a lot of banks to go away just because I think that would be bad, bad for consumers. No, makes make you make a great point. On the, I'm going to put my 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 tin hat on for a moment, my conspiracy hat, and, and, and I'll frame it in a question though. Is there any advantage when I think about you know soft landing for the economy? I, I almost picture like a plane going through trees, right? And like you know, uh, the, is there any advantage that the Fed would have in anticipating this to happen? In other words, they know when they raise rates that bond values are going to go down. I'm sure there's awareness of, you know, the HTM side of banking being as high as it was. Like, was this part of the count? Is this like, hey, blow engine one, we know engine two is still working, or did they clip a wing that they didn't mean to clip on the way down? Like, I don't know what the advantage would be for the Fed to, you know, yeah, we're going to expect this to happen along the way. It wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing when trying to soft land this. But I figured I'd ask you, is there is there any, I don't know, any truth in the potential conspiracy that this was intended by the Fed? I mean, so I think some people might say nobody could ever have predicted this. This was just one of those things that you could never have put together enough pieces to figure out that this was going to happen. But you and I both know that's not true. I mean, right. we were you and before this show earlier today, we were talking about an article that came in out December. in Seeking Alpha back in December that basically went through the math with Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank. Um, it was talked about a little bit back then. Um, I don't remember talking about it, but I've talked to a few people over the last week who said, yeah, we saw that that article yeah, back then. Be clear, not like this could happen in banking, like Silicon Valley Bank is at risk of this happening three exactly. months ago. Right. <laughs> based on based on their actual balance sheet, based on the, the trajectory of interest rates and, and their bond holdings, this is the financial position that Silicon Valley Bank is in, and this could be an issue forthcoming. Yeah. Um, so, so to say that nobody could have foreseen this, at least one person did. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't imagine he or she was the only person that, that actually saw this coming. Whether I think that it was, whether I think the Fed saw this coming, I'm not going to say that there probably weren't people at the Fed that were doing risk analysis who didn't say that this is one of the five or 10 or 50 risks that, that we face if we raise interest rates. But I don't imagine this was the top of the risk list list. And I don't imagine that anybody flagged it as such a big risk that Jay Powell or somebody else said, maybe we shouldn't be raising rates because of this, or maybe we should be taking action because of this. I don't think anybody hmm. took it that seriously. Is there now, a potential advantage though? Like I think of like Roosevelt allowing the bombers to hit Pearl Harbor, like that whole thing, right? Like, hey, US wasn't interested, the government was, so let's let that happen. Oh, we didn't hear anything, so we could get involved. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the theory. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess ahead. that was that was the question you were asking. And actually, now that I think about it, that's a good question. 
Um, again, I don't know if I'm not going to speculate on whether they may have let it happen or did it, but is there advantages? Um, certainly we can see some. Number one, um, what is the Fed's kind of ultimate goal right now? Right. I mean, lower, lower inflation, right. Lower inflation. inflation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to do that, basically they need to, for lack of a better term, break the economy. I mean, they, right. they've been saying that in their own terms. We're raising rates because ultimately we want to break the economy. They're, they're mm. using different words. They don't like the word break, but that's what they want to do. And so raising rates hasn't broken the economy. In, in, right. In, Jobs are up. We'll talk about that. Right. Everything else, every other indice is still strong. There's a low supply of housing. So, you know, other than, like you said, people that took on debt a couple of years ago that was yep. short term and they're getting caught. Other than that, housing and, and real estate is pretty strong. I think we'll talk about it. Uh, uh, the jobs report for February was like 311,000 jobs added. So none of the stuff, no levers that they're pulling and like crank and raise crank. Nothing seems to work. So is it like, OK, cool, let's kill a bank? Well, uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, this is going to be released tomorrow yeah. after the uh, February CPI inflation report comes out. Mm. Um, so if we did this like 16 hours from now, we'd have a lot, a lot more interesting stuff to talk about. Um, so but I think that uh, this may have given the Fed some cover um, to not necessarily raise rates to the degree that they were planning to, uh, but still get the result that they were hoping to get, which is, again, is, is breaking the economy. So I, I think this might be enough um, to really scare folks into starting to act a little differently, to start realizing that, because again, we talked earlier about self-fulfilling prophecy and the fact that perception can become reality. Nowhere is that more true than when it comes to recessions. When people think, the economy is bad. People act in a way that makes the economy bad. They stop spending money. They start saving money. Um, and this is all bad for the economy. Not spending is bad. Saving too much is, is ironically bad. Right. Um, and, and so um, so if this is the thing that kind of leads people to think, oh, no, the economy is going down the shitter, um, then they're going to start acting like that's the case. And maybe that will actually start to happen. And the Fed kind of gets what they want without having to raise rates. I mean, if you just just a couple of days ago before the SVB fiasco, um, there was basically a, a really good chance. I forget the number, but it was like a 70 percent chance that uh, the Fed's rate hike next week, the Fed's meeting next week, that they'd be raising rates uh, a half Over, a point. A half a point. Got it. Half point. Yep. Uh, that was the consensus. Now it's there's. Two thirds. Uh, if you look at the data, it's like a sixty-six or sixty-seven percent um, quarter point, and thirty-three or thirty-four percent no hike at all. Explain that a little bit. That uh, this is where this is where your big brain trumps my big brain. So, or my little brain. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. I have a big brain too. I like to say no, but um, so <sighs> CPI comes out tomorrow, and let's say inflation is still flatter on the rise slightly. Are you saying that the dumpster fire created over here is newsworthy enough to say, okay, hey, everyone, see what we were saying? Economy's broken, proof proven by the SVB collapse. I see the inflation number. Don't worry about that right now. Don't look here. Look over here instead. And because of that, we're going to keep rates flat. Is that is that how it works? I, I My personal opinion yeah. is that the Fed is looking for a reason not to raise rates. 
Um, I don't think the Fed wants to raise rates. I think so. So typically what we see in, in, with rate hikes is a rate hike takes six to nine months to materialize, to actually cause what the hike was meant to cause. And so if I'm the Fed, I'm sitting here thinking we instituted a lot of rate hikes over the last four, five, six months that haven't really fully worked their way through the economy and been able to take hold. So we prefer to have to wait or get to wait a couple months to allow the hikes we've done over the last few months to really take hold. The problem is we have this perception, inflation's still going up. Mm. If we stop raising rates now, people are going to think we're not doing our job. So I think the Fed would actually prefer to slow down the hikes because I think that they probably recognize that they may have already overcorrected. I know that sounds crazy. We still see inflation going up, um, but it's like turning into a skid. Um, a lot of times your, your car starts to hit skid and you start turning the wheel and nothing happens and nothing happens. And then the wheels catch and then you just spin around. And I think the, the Fed may think that that's kind of what's happened. They've raised rates and raised rates and nothing's happened. And then suddenly like that in two or three months, we may see everything kind of come crashing down because they raised rates too quickly, too much. And I think they know that and they're looking for a reason to stop raising and let things kind of catch. Um, and I think this could be the cover that they needed um, to basically go a couple more months and, and, and let things play out without continually raising rates and overcorrecting even more, which could cause an even bigger problem down the road. This is the fun part of this. So we're in the we're in the who could what could be's or whatever, and I love it. I love the idea of what possibly you know, like just talking through different scenarios because you make a great point. It's the Wizard of Oz moment, right? It's like, hey, I see inflation here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Look at this over here instead. Huh? Check that out. And now, hey, you know, we're gonna keep rates flat, and everybody's like, makes sense. Banking banking is collapsing. Not one bank specifically tech like you mentioned uh you know logically that's what it is like one bank over you're not over leveraged but um you know heavy on tech and that industry struggling the way it is went down kind of makes sense but if you just extrapolate it out to oh my god banks are going down we're keeping infl- we're keeping interest rates flat there's a correlation that could be that could be sold to the public essentially uh, my, my partner and I were talking last week that for the last year since rates started going up, the, the general consensus was come March, come, well, today's March, this is March, come yeah. March, um, we would see kind of a final rate hike for the year. And then we just kind of let things coast until we could start lowering rates again. And um, even up until a couple of weeks ago, it seemed pretty reasonable to, to assume that we were going to see a quarter point rate hike in March. And that would be the end of it. And then A few weeks ago, we got the January CPI report, which indicated that maybe inflation isn't under control. And now we went from a quarter point rate hike, and that's the end of it, to in March, there's a good chance we're going to see a half point rate hike, and we're going to see two or three more after that. And my partner and I were talking about the fact that the Fed has to be freaking out because they probably believe that they've already raised rates too quickly and too much. But now they're in this position where because of this high CPI reading, they're going to have to to make it look like they're they're still doing something. So they're going to have to raise a half point. They're going to have to raise next month or the month after that. And they can't be happy about that. And I think this is going to give them the cover to do what they really want to do, which is just kind of let the last year's worth of rate hikes work their way through the system and hopefully take hold. And, And so I expect next week, 
are we going to see a half point or are we going to see a quarter point? I'm sorry, we're not going to see a half point. Are we going to see a quarter point or none? I think it's going to depend on tomorrow's or when this comes out. Today's either, inflation. either way, it's lower than what was anticipated not long ago, right? So, so under ago. a half point is a signal of, you know, maybe some some uh, 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 strength, I guess you could say, from that perspective. Are we in a recession, Jay? What's your take? So, so well, let me let me appease all the people out there that that we got into this argument last year when we saw two negative quarters of yeah. of, of GDP recession. Growth. Technically, yeah, and right everybody there. was like, "We have a definition, and we can't change the definition, and that's a recession. And we're in a recession." Well, for those people, we are definitely not in a recession because we've now had two positive quarters of GDP growth. Right. So, if, if you're one of those people that that adheres to that definition religiously, then then clearly we're not in a recession. Um, that said, um, and I've been saying this for six, nine months now, um, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because here's mm-hmm. the thing. Um, if, if I, if the government decides we're in a recession or I tell you we're in a recession and you, I convince you that we're in a recession, what's going to be different? What's going to change? It's not like the government sends out the national guard when, when they decide there's a recession. It's not like you're going to wake up and say, I'm doing my whole life differently. We're in a recession now. Uh, we weren't yesterday, but today we are. Nothing really changes. It's just a word. Um, and so are we in a recession? I don't know. I'm not even sure that there's a good answer to that. I mean, there's so many factors that 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 play into are we in a recession? It's kind of like, um, uh, are you hungry? I yeah. mean, yeah, people yeah. ask me, are you hungry? Well, I could eat. Am I hungry? Right. I don't know. Huh? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I have right. I, 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 skew, I skew probably too rosy on this stuff because I, I look, I lived through 08. I wasn't an, I wasn't a full time investor that I and I know people were impacted, just like people are going to be impacted in tech. So just like people are gonna, like there's always going to be an impact, whether we're in a recession, not in a recession, businesses are cyclical, but right? there's always an impact. It just gets more news as the macro economy conditions change to where we are now, rising interest rates, inflation and all that stuff. But even back and you correct me on this, but back in 08, we went from maybe like half a percentage of foreclosures to like two and a half percent, which is a major jump, right? But I'm just thinking if I'm in a room of a hundred people and you said like 99% of these people, maybe a little bit more are not in foreclosure. And then a week later you say like, yeah, it's like 97, 98 of these people are not in foreclosure. Like to me, that doesn't feel catastrophic, right? And again, doesn't mean that the extra person in that room in foreclosure isn't going through something. I get it. But we tend to go on like, oh my God, unemployment's at 10 or 9% when it was like an 08. But I'm like, well, but 90% of people have jobs, right? So to your point, I guess, you know, the sun rises, the sun sets, my house is still standing. You know, I mean, yeah, it gets a little stressful or whatever the case may be. But generally speaking, I kind of go by that mindset, even if we do plunge into an economic, I, I, maybe I just haven't lived through enough of a, of a, of a, of a great depression like downturn. Uh, to see the like, wow, every four people I see, one of them is destitute. I just haven't seen that. Maybe that's my problem. I don't know. What do you what do you think on that? Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a couple things at play. One, if you would have asked me last summer when we saw two negative quarters of GDP growth, are we in a recession? I gave the same answer. I don't know, but the reality was I didn't think we were. Mm. Um, and and I was spending a lot of time fighting more than I probably should have fighting all those people that were like, well, here's the definition. We're in a recession. I'm like, no, I don't care about that definition. The data is what matters. We're not in a recession. I think it's safe to say we're closer now than we were then. 
Sure. Um, so, um, so I'm not saying we definitely are now, but we're definitely closer than we were last summer, um, even though GDP is looking a lot rosier than it was last summer. So I'll start with that. Things are definitely looking worse than they were last summer. But I also want to point out that for a lot of people, especially in the real estate industry, especially probably people that are listening to this, um, a lot of them are on the younger side. I'm an old guy. I'm, yeah. I'm 50. And, and so I've lived through several recessions, but for anybody that's under 30, First time. really the only recession that they remember, the only one that's made an impact on them was 2008. And so from their perspective, a recession is what happened in 2008, right. but here's the reality. What happened in 2008 wasn't a typical that's recession. That's a good point. What happened that in was 2008. It was a biggie. Yeah. And I remember 2001. And let me tell you something. 2001 felt worse than what we're in now, but not that much worse. Um, I remember the early 90s. Early 90s was probably a little bit worse than that, but still not much worse than this. Um, savings and loan crisis back in the late 80s. Um, not fun, but but it wasn't like this, or it wasn't like 2008. Mm -hmm. And so for anybody that that remembers 2008 but doesn't remember prior recessions, and for anybody who thinks 2008 is kind of the litmus test for is this a recession, let me tell you something. Great point. There's there's a lot of room between recession and where we were in 2008, the bottom yeah. dropping out. And so I'm, I'm very hopeful that what we see this time is it's going to be a recession. There's no sure. doubt about that. We're heading towards a recession, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're heading back to 2008. And so for anybody out there that's concerned when they hear the word recession um, and they, they equate it to what happened in 2008, not necessarily the case. Got it. I love that. Great perspective. I want to clean up three, three uh, quick, uh, well, however quick you want to make them categories. So first, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say anything quickly, unfortunately. I'm that's fine. However quickly you want to go. <laughs> I'll keep you here for hours if you let me. So you, you do whatever you need to. You just give me the signal when you need to go. Um, on Signature Bank, I want to start there. So this was like a crypto bank, right? Essentially, from what I understand. Um, same thing, run on the bank. Crypto is very liquid, right? So you can, you can sort of, you know, Whatever you pull out your money, there's no money left, and there's no money left, right? So that bank gets kind of taken into receivership, I think, as well. You can correct the record on that if I'm wrong. Yep. But what does it say about the crypto market? Is it any any different? I mean, Bitcoin looks what like what it was. I mean, is it does it change the dynamic of the crypto market one way or the other? What's the impact of this this signature bank takeover? Wow! Now you're asking me to forecast crypto. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know enough. All I know is I bought crypto way too expensive. Bitcoin. And now it's not worth what I bought it for. Cause I was like, no, I don't think I should. I don't think I should. Everybody's like, dude, you got to go. Okay. I'll buy. And then it was, it's down tens yeah. of thousands for me. Right. So it is what it is, but I don't know enough about what this bank's closure, if anything has any impact, maybe even just now, maybe forecasting now, whatever, but what's the, what do crypto people need to know or think about when it comes to this bank crashing? So there were a couple of crypto companies that between them had billions of dollars in both between Signature and Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so there were there were a lot of, of crypto companies that were worried over the weekend that they were going to take huge losses. Looks like they're not going to take any losses, as, as we now know. Um, but we saw like um, uh, some stable coins that are pegged to the dollar that were no longer pegged, um, that were dropping like 18%, mm. which was a big drop because people assume, no, stable coins are... are 
we call them stable coins. They don't. They're if we peg them to to, to the dollar, they're gonna they're gonna stay pegged. And and so what we're seeing is that crypto may not be the the panacea of of like alternative currency as it once was. But here's the bigger thing: um, when Bitcoin came out, what was it twelve years ago? And and all these other cryptocurrencies, actual currencies, came out many years ago. The talk was that these are alternatives to fiat currency. Yes, They're right. alternatives to traditional assets. And the belief was for a long time that Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other crypto tokens um, were going to somehow be um, negatively correlated to traditional asset classes. So the stock market goes down, Bitcoin's going to go up because um, because it's a, it's a hedge. It's like gold. gold um, right, yeah. People are going to flee there for safety. But in reality, what we've seen over the last couple of years is the money that's going into crypto is Wall Street money. Mm. And what we've seen over the last, since, since pretty much uh, COVID, um, is that for the most part, crypto is tied to traditional asset classes, especially in the stock market. When the stock market goes up, crypto goes up. When the stock market goes down, crypto goes down. So no longer do, do people feel like uh, crypto is going to be this bellwether um, that's going to, to save us if the, the market goes down or if, if other asset classes start to, uh, start to soften. I think what we're realizing is that the same people that are investing in the stock market and real estate and all these other traditional asset classes are just diversifying into crypto and they're moving money around in crypto the same way they're moving money around in other asset classes. And so um, do I think crypto is going to do well? I think that um, as, as the economy worsens and as we head more into a recession, which I expect over the next several months, I think crypto is probably not going to fare particularly well, whether it's going to um, uh, perform a little bit better than than maybe the stock market. Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe no. But I certainly don't see it um, being negatively correlated to a large degree, and and it performing really well should everything else go to go to crap. Got it. This recession that you talk about over the next few months, you know, I get that sense as well. One of the things you talked about that I think I thought was interesting was interest rate hikes. Uh, have a six to nine month tail on them, right? So and there have been hikes over the last four or five months. So now ish into the into the summer months, uh, we should start to see should start to see the impact of of all these hikes, right? The jobs report I mentioned before, first two months really really strong. Two the three hundred eleven thousand jobs added in February. I forget the number for January. Is that one of those lagging indicators? Like, are we when we go say recession? Is are are we going to see right now? Is it like don't look ahead? It looks really good now. Just go with it. It feels good for consumer spending and economic conditions or whatever. But boy, that's going to go down really hard. Like, what, what's the talk to me about the jobs report that we've had and what you anticipate coming up with the next? I don't know, four, six, eight months, whatever, whatever you want to project. So historically, no, the jobs report isn't a lagging indicator. The jobs mm-hmm. report is a leading indicator historically. Um, typically, if you want to know where the economy's heading, you look at businesses. Um, because yeah, can we, we think about everything is consumer centric because we're consumers. We think about people and what they're going through. But the reality is, if you look at business performance, that's going to give you the best idea of where the economy is heading. And historically, jobs has been a good leading indicator of where the overall economy is heading. Um, and so the fact that we're starting to see cracks in the economy, the fact that um, we're seeing equities kind of level off. The fact that we're seeing savings rates drop, the fact that we're seeing uh, consumer debt go through the roof, the fact that we're um, seeing uh, uh, 
still seeing supply chain issues. All that leads me to believe or would have led me to believe that by now we should have seen jobs issues, Mm. but we haven't. So the question is, why are jobs kind of acting differently than they have in the last, I don't know if there was every recession, but certainly most of the last 34 recessions that we've seen, jobs have been a leading indicator. So what's different this time? I think one of the things that's different this time is we have a whole lot fewer people in the workforce than we had just a couple of years ago. And so um, why is that? Number one, uh, well, COVID was the the big driver of that. And so there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years, where have all of these people gone? So we have this thing called the labor participation rate, which is the number of people that could be participating uh, in the labor force that could have jobs. Um, And what we're seeing is that percentage has been relatively low for the last two years, meaning people have just not been looking for jobs. So why is that? Um, Number one, we talk about the fact that COVID drove a lot of people who were on the cusp of retiring to retiring early. So there were probably people 61, 62, 63, 64 years old um, who were probably within a couple of years of retiring. COVID came along and they're like, well, I'm not going to go get a job now after, after being out of the workforce for a year or two and being this age. So that's number one. Gig economy, number two. Um, so a lot of people now going, they're driving for DoorDash or Uber, or they're working, doing Etsy stores or things like that. They're kind of doing their own thing. And so they're not getting hired. They're not doing traditional jobs. Um, and so it's making it a lot harder for, um, for retailers and, and regular employers to, to hire because there's just fewer people out there. But I read something a couple months ago that I thought was really interesting. If you look at this labor participation rate, and so basically the drop in number of people who could be working that are actually working, uh, what we've seen over the last year is that um, in most areas, the labor participation rate has come back up to where it was pre-pandemic. So basically mm-hmm. in most areas, we have as many people that were working um Uh, now as we had back in 2019 before the pandemic. There are several areas where um, the labor participation rate is still very, very low. And what that's correlated to is areas where housing did really, really well during COVID. Hmm. And so what the, the, the conventional wisdom is or the working theory is, is that in areas where housing went up considerably during COVID, People basically are living off the equity that they built in those houses and aren't going back to work. And so these are areas where we typically think of the white collar areas. So big cities um, where where we saw a big boom in, 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 in housing values. And so what we're seeing is that we're seeing a lot of high paid workers that aren't going back to work. We're seeing a lot of low paid workers that are starting to go back to work. And so while we may be at full employment, this 3.5, 3.6 employment rate, what we're seeing is that the distribution of employees that are working is very different than what we would expect or what it was a couple of years ago. Specifically, wow. we're seeing a lot of people who are underemployed. We're seeing a lot of people who are making less money or the average wage has gone down. Um, and so, uh, what does that mean? I think it means that the we don't have an apples to apples comparison of that number everybody likes to look at that 3.5 or 3.6 unemployment rate, that number we call the U3 rate, 
comparing that to pre-COVID numbers, it's, it's just not a good apples to apples comparison. We can't say because we have historically low unemployment that that necessarily means that the, 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 the job force is strong. Um, so I do think things are weaker than they actually appear if you just look at one or two numbers. And if you dig into some of the other numbers, what you see is that things really aren't as strong as, as they necessarily were. But things are still pretty strong, and I'm not sure anybody knows why jobs have been more resilient this time around than they have been in the past. I don't think anybody knows how people are still spending as much money as they have been, given that inflation is so high. Um, you wouldn't expect that GDP should be as high as it is. You should expect people would have stopped spending by now, but they haven't. And so there's a lot of weirdness still going on from COVID, and I don't think anybody knows why. Um, so I guess that's my really long way of saying mm. that, yeah, jobs this time around are a whole lot different than they have been in the past. Nobody really knows why that is. Nobody knows when they're going to break, how they're going to break, why they're going to break. Um, but I think that's, the, that's the, the, the domino that has to come tumbling down before we really see the recession that everybody expects to happen. On the commercial real estate side, this is a space you're in. Great answer, by the way. Um, what are you anticipating over the next year? I mean, let me let me preface that. We talked about short-term debt coming due. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of people that that just can't. They can't get out of that asset. They whatever they do, they do a capital call. They get the keys back to the bank. Whatever it might be. Yep. But generally speaking, where do you see the? I, I, maybe you can just sort of like brief real estate generally. Like, are we going to see a heavy buying season coming up in March, like March, April, May, like we like we normally do? Spring uh, is multifamily, industrial. Like, where is real estate going through all of this? Do you feel strong about it? What are you looking at as an underwriter, as somebody who's buying multifamily? Um, just kind of your perspective on the real estate market as we roll forward. So we ask, we talk about commercial real estate. Commercial real estate isn't an asset class. Commercial real estate is a lot of asset classes. So, so let's look at them uh, separately. Um, office, I think yeah. hopefully we agree. I think most people agree office is, is a really bad place to be right now. Although I am hearing about some really, really big investors who, um, who seem to think office is going to, to make a big comeback. I don't know why. I'm in the same spot. Like I, I would say on the surface, like I'm not smart enough maybe, but office does not seem like a good place to be, but I've heard the exact same thing that there's a big play. Maybe it's just that a discount and they're converted or there's, I don't know. Who knows? I'm, I'm wondering if it's conversion opportunities, yeah. people turning office into multifamily or, or industry or something like that. But so, so number one, I don't like office. I feel the same way about retail. Um, I think retail is not a good place to be right now, obviously heading into a recession. Um, we're going to see a lot of retailers struggle. Plus, we still have Amazon taking market share from, from the brick and mortar. And so retail is not a place where I'd want to be right now. So that that brings us kind of back to um, multifamily and industrial. I like both those asset classes moving forward. Are we going to see uh, a tougher market over the next year or two? I, I do think so. I think we're going to see cap rates expand a little bit more. I think we're going to see um, a number of existing uh, operators who run into problems. I think there are three issues, and, and I don't want to harp on this because I've talked about this before, but I see three issues in the finance world. Number one, with rates going up, there's just a whole lot less cash flow. And so we're seeing a, a lot of operators who are unable to, to make payments to their investors. Um, we're seeing distributions drop, et cetera. Number two, um, we're, we're heading into a year of high interest rates. Uh, a lot of loans that that typical uh, commercial real estate investors use are floating rate loans that are two, three, four, five-year loans. 
So at some point soon, we're going to start to see a lot of these loans coming due and investors aren't going to be able to refinance um, the full loan out because um, they're, they're just there's not enough cash flow to get a loan big enough to do a full refinance. So they're either going to um, they're going to have to fire sale the property or they're going to have to do a capital call and get their investors to put in more money. And number three, and I think this is the one that's not talked about enough, but we have this thing called rate caps, which is basically insurance that that uh, operators need to buy if they get floating rate debt. Um, they need to go out and basically buy this insurance policy that says if rates go too high, we're not going to make you pay interest at that level. We'll, we'll cover the, the, the excess, but you have to pay for this insurance policy and lenders often require this insurance policy. What we're finding is the cost of these insurance policies have gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. And um, for anybody that has an insurance policy that's expiring, that has to buy a new one, um, they're going from paying hundreds or thousands of dollars a month to potentially paying tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars per month for these insurance uh, uh, policies. And that's destroying cash flow and and putting some operators out of business for some properties. So I I definitely think that we're going to see some some struggles in the multifamily world. I think there's going to be enough of them that we're going to see cap rates expand a little bit. Uh, Same in- in, uh, How much? How much do you underwrite for that? So I'm curious, like what if a half- 50 basis points? Like how far do you underrate? Uh, when you say cap rates expanding, what's like a good conservative? Like if somebody's looking to be an LP on a deal and they're looking at the underwriting, I know it's market by market, but just kind of yeah, generally I, speaking. I, I hate saying this because I'm going to have people that are going to like start throwing tomatoes at their screen. Um, but here's the reality. And, and when we do deals, we can't underwrite to this, but this is what I really think is going to happen. So we've already seen about 50 50 basis points, half point uh, cap rate expansion in, in most markets that I'm in. Some is a little bit, some are a little bit lower, some are a little bit higher, but about 50 basis points. Um, what I expect is that for most of these deals that we're buying, let's say we're buy a deal today, how long are we going to hold it? We're going to hold it for three, five, seven years. I expect that in three, five, seven years, cap rates are actually going to be lower than where they are today. Mm. So if, if I am going into a deal as an LP, I'm probably comfortable saying that the exit cap rate is whatever the cap rate is in that market today. So if I'm mm-hmm. if if I'm going to a deal at a five percent cap rate today, I'm probably comfortable if the if the the sponsor is underwriting that deal at a five percent exit three four five six seven years from now. Sure. Now, as a sponsor, I can't underwrite deals that way because I know a lot of my my investors are thinking there's no way you you, you have to expect. Right cap rates to go up because that's- Give me worst always, case, Jake. Give me worst case, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that's what we've always done. We've always underwritten expansion in cap rates um, because for the last 10 years, there's only been one place for cap rates to go. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would tell investors, if you want to make your investors happy, you better expect at least 10 basis points per year, at least 0.1% per year. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, we've done point one five or 15 basis points. If you want to be safe, do 15 basis points. But honestly, I, I think by the time a lot of deals that are bought today are sold, we're going to see cap rates actually lower than where they are today. And that's great. So we have a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, upside um, factored in and, and maybe we'll do even better than we expect. So am I overly conservative in saying that the smart play is low loan to value, long-term debt? Terms at five years plus extension or 10 years if you can get it or whatever it might be. 100%. And I like the low loan to value. Um, means we have to raise more equity. It means uh, in, uh, operators are going to take a haircut 
because mm-hmm. they're giving more away to their investors. Um, but there are strategies, things like preferred equity. Preferred equity is making a comeback today, which is kind of like um, this, this bridge equity that sits between the lender and the, the regular investors. I think that's we're going to see more of that over the next year or two. Um, but yeah, I, I think fixed rate long-term debt is the way to go. The downside to fixed rate long-term debt is that typically there are prepayment penalties. Sure. Um, and so I think we're going to start seeing deals that are held longer. Over the last couple of years, we, we've been in this situation where we tell our investors, we're going to hold this for three or five or seven years. And then 18 months in, we're, the property's gone up so much in value that we sell. And I think our investors are getting used to like turning over their money every 18 or 24 months. I don't think we're going to see that over the next few years. I think we're going to be getting a lot of long-term fixed rate debt that we just can't afford the prepayment penalty to sell in three or four or five years. And so we're going to have to hold for at least five, six, seven years. Wow. All right. I'm going to touch on one last thing and then I'm going to give you, you're like the, the economic jukebox. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give you, <laughs> give you a break here. I appreciate you doing this, but um, I want to talk about this one from a, from a, a from a uh, currency perspective, the peso, the Mexican peso is up 8% and there's companies coming from China into Mexico. This is like a Peter, you familiar with Peter Zion? I am. Dude, I follow that guy. I don't want to say religiously, but fairly religiously. And he's a dream podcast guest. So if you have a connection, I'll take it. But um, he has been projecting for a long time and it makes a lot of sense, sort of a return to a, a, a not a return to, but like a, a supply chain alignment across the northeast corridor which i didn't realize until reading him like we're a net as a not northeast nor, uh, north american corridor is the north america you know, canada u.s mexico so yep. on and so forth and i didn't realize we're a next net collectively a net exporter of food a net exporter of gas we're a net exporter Absolutely. of most things like we are extremely resource rich potash in the north you name it right yep so what is what is is this already happening is that what's happening are we already starting to see a zion-esque world where companies are starting to return after COVID, maybe with some of the the interest rate hikes, making things more expensive. Are we starting to become sort of independent as a North American continent already? Is that why the peso is up? Um, so one, I wouldn't use the word Zionist because you're going to, you're going to get lots of political pushback there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good point. Peter Zihan. Zihan. Yeah, good point. <laughs> hey, I'm Jew- I'm Jewish. I can make that joke. I forgot um, about that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I think it's a little, and, and again, not my area of expertise, but I think it's a little bit premature to um, attribute uh, the rise in, in other North American currencies against the dollar to that. Um, the the dollar has been super strong. The past couple of years, I think it was clear that we were going to see some some other currencies emerge as as competitors. Um, did we expect it to be the pesos or the peso? No, um, absolutely not. Why is is it the peso? I don't know. Um, <laughs> But I think it's, and maybe there are smarter people than I am and, and people that are actually predicting um, that that we're going to start seeing better trade agreements in, in North America than we've seen the last couple of years. And, and we're going to be um, a, a much bigger manufacturing center. Um, certainly, it's funny because we talk about North America as a big manufacturing center. You just made some reference to it. But it's when we say North America, it's not the U.S., Right, I mean, right, right. I mean, uh, and but I think that's starting to change. Um, I think COVID, if not from a a actual tactical standpoint, at least from a um, a 
cognitive standpoint, there are a lot of people who are thinking, hey, we need to get back to become more of a manufacturing society. We need to be more self-reliant. Um, we need to be more um, uh, more net export of things in general. I mean, if you look at our, 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 um, our trade imbalance over the last couple of years, it's gone through the roof. Um, and so uh, certainly uh, Mexico, even Canada to a large degree, um, has bridged that gap. So, so North America has has done a great job of of holding their place as as kind of a net exporter. But I'm not sure we can credit U.S. for for contributing much to that over the last couple. We're of years. good at consumption. We're the consumers. Yeah, yeah. but but uh, <laughs> the the rise of other currencies in North America uh, to attribute that to to changing in 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 exports or the perception of, of exports. Too soon. I, I, I maybe, maybe. And, and so <laughs> I would say, I haven't heard that. I haven't read that. Um, but yeah, not my area of expertise. It just, maybe because I haven't heard or read about it. Um, it feels like that's, that's not, not uh, a correlation at this point, but sure. I could be wrong. Had to squeeze it in. Had to squeeze yeah. it in. Jay, man, you 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 are always incredible with with anything. I mean, you just you study this stuff so intently, and I love that you balance you know historic uh, knowledge with current conditions to give you know the best you can of a future projection. As we said at the jump, you're no prognosticator. Your crystal ball is as dusty as anybody's. But what you have uh, what you shared, I think, is really really impactful, including you know takeaways for founders, takeaways for real estate investors, so on and so forth. For people to learn more, what's the best way to to get more of your knowledge downloaded? If we, uh, if I, if I may, what's the best way to find you? Learn learn more from you. Learn more about you. Yeah, if you go to www.connectwithjscott.com, just the letter J, www.connectwithjscott.com, that'll link you out to everything. Uh, I do do a weekly newsletter, so if you're interested, uh, hop on my my newsletter list. I don't it's sell amazing. Anything. Yeah, appreciate. It. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, because I, I I I like to write about the things that nobody else seems to want to talk about. Not they don't want to talk about, but nobody seems to talk about just macroeconomics and and currencies and and some geopolitical stuff that I think impacts us as real estate investors. And so, uh, hop on the newsletter if if, uh, if if you're interested, and feel free to reach out to me. All right, Ben. I appreciate you coming, and thanks for spending an hour and a half with me on this on a, on a one-day notice. So thanks, as always. Great to see you, and I appreciate all the value you provide. This was great. Thanks for having me.